do everything. Now we're Make that small. Good. Thank you so much. Uh, so hello everyone. Uh, really welcome uh, you to uh, to this uh, great uh, lecture uh, by Dr. Stephen uh, Stenberg. Uh, my name is Ken. Uh, I'm the section chair for AIWA Los Angeles that's biggest section. Uh, on behalf of the whole section, we welcome you and uh, we want to build a connection with the as the professor is doing is. Uh, you know, he's working in government and also academic. And we have a lot of members working actually in uh, industries, you know, uh, spy satellite or military or like just uh, commercial or research. Uh, so we want to build a connection as good for your future and also for a mutual support for each other. So uh, let's just move this. Okay, so first of all, thanks AIWA. Uh, headquarter, of course, uh, Dr. Stanford. And uh, so for people, folks online, if you have bandwidth issue, please, uh, you can turn off your um, camera and uh, you can also dial in to save the bandwidth if that's a problem. Uh, just a quick word about AIWA. AIWA is a nonprofit organization. It's American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Uh, our mission is to help you, you know, to encourage people to do a good job, to learn more about what this profession is all about and how to be doing. Uh, there are a lot of great uh, people and excitement. For example, uh, our exec executive director, Dr. Um, Mr. Daniel Parker, he's actually the former NASA manager for the DCXA, the vertical launch, vertical landing rocket 20 years ago ahead of SpaceX and Blue Origin for 20 years. Uh, so that's the how kind of, how kind of people we have. Uh, so basically we have a very long history, uh, more than 90 years. Uh, you know Wright Brothers, right? Uh, Robert Goddard, one on uh, aviation, one, uh, one on rocketry. Uh, they founded their organization in the 1920s and both organizations uh, merged in early 1960 become AWA. So we are direct, um, you know, uh, descended for brothers and uh, uh, brother brother. Uh, so it's very, uh, we have a national presence, you know, uh, everywhere as you see the picture, uh, but we also have international presence. Okay, we have more than 30,000 members. Uh, it's growing. Our headquarters in Virginia, uh, DC. So uh, it's good for people. If you are a student, we have a student membership, you're professional, we have free educator free high school membership. The university student uh, member is uh, $28 per year. And we have a student branch actually here on Cal State Long Beach. Unfortunately, there are two pieces that cannot come here. <laughs> but some of them they are doing online. Yeah, I think the course or something like that. The different category of membership. Uh, generally, we're professional, we're young professional. Uh, when you graduate at the certified, you pay 50%. We retire also 50%. Uh, so you can see uh, educator is free. Uh, we do a very good job in STEM outreach. So this is just an example of uh, who we are, what we're doing. Uh, so for example, this is our council, our board member for Los Angeles, Las Vegas section. Uh, well, this is kind of, uh, uh, you see the picture up the left, uh, Dr. Jeff Michelle, he was, uh, he, he is with Raytheon. He's highly respected, he's a satellite remote sensing expert. Uh, he's an Edward Fellow, Raytheon Fellow. So just give an example. Then we also have Sherry, upper right. Uh, she's working with JPL. 
And uh, then we have Kirsty, uh, you know, the second row, the third third column that she's working for me. Then we have uh, Lee, the third person here, uh, is uh, with uh, advanced aircraft with Mosul Grumman. And then we have also education. This gentleman, you probably need to remember, he's our education director. Uh, he's uh, actually worked with Lucky Market. Uh, so he's helping the university to gain more uh, connection. So uh, if you are a member, you can join the technical committee in the call the way. And uh, it's like a social media or other way engage. You can reach out to global uh, experts in aerospace. Every day, if you like, if you uh, receive the email for daily launch, uh, then of course the prestigious Aerospace America for free if you are a member of the way. Uh, and then you can join the way conference for free. Uh, not for, sorry, with greatest discount, for free. And the uh, uh, way published, so it's a great, a resource, a lot of uh, uh, distinguished journal, and also uh, a foundation uh, for giving awards and career center. And uh, one important thing is if you are a member of AWA, you can elevate advance of your membership. Uh, for example, a very good example is, uh, for example, our Dr. Jeffrey Bushell, as I just mentioned, former section chair, he's AWA fellow. Uh, one person, I want to, uh, Mr. Steve Zappowitz, is uh, a fellow, he's a president of Aerospace Corporation. Uh, we have an uh, uh, educator here, she's actually working there. Uh, and uh, we have Queen uh, uh, Shaftwell, she is actually leading SpaceX here, uh, honor fellow. And uh, uh, Dr. Gerstenmeier, Bill Gerstenmeier, he's actually right now the VP uh, of SpaceX. And uh, you can get awards if you do a good jobs, for example, uh, this lower lab, Dr. Benlapa, he was the inventor of F-35 beetle engine. On the right is uh, Mr. Pugino, is a uh, president of Honda Aircraft. And they got a read uh, award last year. A student membership, we got uh, the chance to get the scholarship. And uh, this, these are the major airway conference, national conference. For example, the Ascent uh, is next month, it's about space. Uh, very very exciting and uh, uh, just a few words about southern california we are here there are so many aerospace companies here so we really want to connect with uh, dr stamper uh, with this exciting field with the industry and of course you you know uh universities and also the professionals there's so many of them there's a new company you know uh, coming here every every few months we just have a a slim shot aerospace coming to El Segundo. Then we have another company, I think it's called the uh, Spin Launch in Long Beach, right here. At Long Beach, you have a activity space, uh, you know, uh, virgin orbit, a lot of great activity. And actually here, the more 3D, 3D printing company is also in Long Beach. So uh, we keep doing events. Uh, so I have uh, my personal business, uh, not my organization, the business car on the back. Uh, so please pick it up and send me an email and I can send you all the great events. Uh, this Saturday, we'll have the quantum physics event. Uh, then next Saturday, next Thursday, we are going to downtown, very exciting space architecture. Uh, then we have like a 3D printing and uh, uh, Dr. Bradley is going to talk about sustainable aviation and electric hybrid aircraft, which is flying cars, it's very exciting. So we also have newsletter. So we just have a woman 
professional event, making space for women. And uh, actually, this this lady here, Diana, she graduated from Cal State Long Beach, and uh, she is now working in Northrop Grumman. So it's a great example. And uh, you can see actually several interesting person behind. Uh, and then we have our uh, Monica. She is sitting right right there. She's our uh, model uh, educator. And then she's also the president of Satellite Education Conference, which is great to do. Uh, so um, without further ado, I think you all very familiar with Dr. Stanford. So I'm not going to read all the details, but if you look at his amazing career that he's very um, involved in the development of GIS and the remote sensing. And uh, you know, he's working with so many departments and I, I'm so impressed that uh, you know, this, uh, let's say this, uh, uh, you know, of course, you know, 110,000 uh, county employees, you know, of course, 40 department and uh, so many organizations. Uh, and this is a, a emerging field. And uh, uh, I have been discussing with our uh, members, uh, including Dr. Michelle and uh, some of the following top secret uh, people working on spy satellite. I mean, this is really amazing field because you can use it for your daily life. For people, a lot of people that work on military things, they don't, they cannot share, you know, uh, they cannot really, uh, but you might end up working with them. For example, there's a company called Maxa. Uh, it took a remote sensing, very, very important part of the brand situation right now. We have to have people working Good to network. So the key thing is network. Uh, so basically, Dr. Stanford is, is the uh, GIO uh, in the LA County, but he's also a professor here and uh, uh, been involved with many, many, you know, as he said in the very beginning, the broadband uh, uh, and uh, many things. And that we really want to build a connection uh, with AWA because it uh, has a lot of people working on this. Uh, so, uh, without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Stanford. You don't have to clap for me. <laughs> <laughs> you've seen me every, most of you have seen me every week, right? Uh, but welcome to our guests in the room and online. Uh, it's nice to have you. And I do think, as Ken said, a lot of the organizations your members worked with, you mentioned, you know, all the aerospace companies locally, many of them are involved in the road sensing acquisition and the development of those technologies that we're interested in, you know, in the geospatial realm for our own uses and analysis and mapping. So, uh, and I will, for the students, I, I'll give you a copy of these, this, this set of slides and just show uh, on the class site. Okay, jump to the slides for today. Oh, yeah, I need to share. Is it not sharing? What's that? I always forget something. There we go. Now. It's always the technology that's uh, never gonna work with this little three box. 
there. Okay, I think we got most of the screen visible. Okay, so what I want to talk to about today, I mean, we've been talking about remote sensing in the classroom side here for you know the last 45 minutes. Um, I'm going to turn my attention now to how we use geospatial imagery from various platforms uh, in local government in LA County or more broadly local governments. Uh, and I'm going to do a little bit of stage setting, especially for those online who may not uh, know the context that we're working in at the county, um, but also for the students a little bit too. Uh, some of this may be new. Okay. So I'll give you a little bit of background just on who LA County is, you know, broadly. Um, I know your section doesn't, you cover like a lot of, not just California, right? You cover this whole West, California and adjacent. Yes, our region six. Yeah. So, so maybe some people don't know LA County who are, who are listening in. Um, talk a little bit about how we use spatial information generally, um, which often comes from remote sensing, but not exclusively. I'll give you a few use cases and examples um, and sure a few other you know, tidbits along the way. So that's kind of my quick overview. Um, so if you don't know LA County, um, we are the largest county in the country, over 10 million population. So if we were one a state unto ourselves, we would be one of the top 10 states by population in the country. About the same size population as North Carolina, Michigan, sort of. Uh, states like that. Our geography is a little bit smaller than those states, obviously, uh, but we're still fairly large, 4,000 square miles-ish. Uh, there's always debate when you're dealing with coastlines about how, how long the coastline is and therefore how big the area encompassed is. That's a fractal problem we won't get into. Um, but the important thing for county government is our jurisdictional responsibility for most things is the unincorporated portions of the geography, those parts that are not within a city. So we're sitting here in this room in the city of Long Beach. The city of Long Beach has its own government. They take care of most of their own stuff. And that's not, you know, as a county person, that's not officially my business. Um, we have 88 cities in the county. Those are all on this map, the gray parts. The yellow stuff is everything else, the unincorporated, that's the county jurisdiction. Now, there are certain areas like public health that cross over, um, where the county is the public health agency for most of the cities as well. Although Long Beach is special, they have their own public health, as does Pasadena. Um, but that said, you can see it's you know probably about 60% of the land area from a, from a government jurisdiction perspective is unincorporated county. Um, and we do all those services. Um, and of the 88 cities, we still provide a lot of services on contract to about 50 of the cities. Fire, sheriff, you know, sort of emergency response uh, goes, we do for many of our cities and a lot of other things. And you can already sort of imagine if we have to know about what's happening in this much geographic area serving this many people in this many you know, 50 contract cities plus the unincorporated county, we have a lot of data needs. So that's where this stuff comes in. So. County is big, uh, as you know, and complicated. So we have, and I never can give you a solid number. So I'll say about 37 departments. I think in the last couple of months, we created two or three new departments. So they're always reconfiguring. 
um, new departments based on you know what's going on in the world where we need to focus. We have a lot of departments. We have hundreds of committees and special commissions, school districts, sanitation districts, water districts, lots of jurisdictions. It's, it's super complicated to even get your head around. Um, we, as, as Ken noted, we have over 100,000 employees in the county. For those interested in geospatial specifically, about 160 GIS classified positions across the county, but a lot of GIS and geospatial users, other types of data analysts, data scientists, decision makers that leverage all this information we're doing. Um, from just an internal perspective, we have over 4,000 buildings that we manage or occupy. So those are office buildings, hospitals, clinics, parks, rec centers, you know, lifeguard towers at the beaches, all kinds of stuff, structures, lots of parkland. Um, and costs a lot of money. So, you know, like I said, we're, we're as big as a state in many ways. We have a big budget. I don't get enough of it, but that's a separate complaint <laughs> I will leave aside. Uh, but um, this year, it's about a $36 billion budget, which is a lot of money, but again, serving a lot of people in a lot of areas. So that's just to sort of set the stage. Um, a little bit about, for those who may not know what a GIO is, again, probably more of the folks listening uh, from the outside organization. Um, so you may have heard of a CIO, a chief information officer. Those are common in many organizations and they deal with data um, information in a digital form across pretty much all domains. Um, so that's people dealing with databases essentially and data systems. Um, my role as a GIO is to narrowly focus on the geospatial component. Now, some of you might already know this, because I've said it in a prior class, everything's spatial. Now, almost everything we do in our lives in government happens somewhere. So, you know, I always am poking and prodding my colleagues at the county saying, well, yeah, but your data is spatial too. So it really is in the geospatial realm. Uh, yeah. But what we do in collaboration, to be honest, um, you know, between the geographic side and the information side, is find ways to leverage data in space, in geography, to help move the county's mission forward, whatever that may be. So I work on a lot of strategy and vision around implementing geospatial. And when I get to the imagery part in particular, um, how can we leverage remotely sensed imagery to do the county's business more effectively and efficiently? Um, because there are lots of opportunities. Some we've done for a long time, some are emerging, some have yet to be explored. Um, but that's really my role is to work across all of our departments and organizations to help the staff, the management, the decision makers see where they can leverage geospatial information, remotely sensed information to do a better job um, across. And then coordinate all that stuff because what we don't wanna do is replicate the same thing in 37 departments. That would be inefficient. We want to share data, share capabilities and resources and tools and software and all that stuff. So keeps me pretty busy. Um, the way we structured that, like any large organization, is we have what's known as an enterprise GIS structure. Um, what that means is we have a centralized enterprise GIS team that administers the infrastructure, servers, software platforms, databases, geodatabases, scripting and maintenance of data and all that stuff for everybody. 
So every department doesn't stand up its own server. Every department doesn't contract its own data collections. We do that centrally at the enterprise level, and then we share that out. So the simple way to, I like to describe that is we're the hub of the wheel, and then the spokes go out to all the different departments and end users who have needs for geospatial information, geospatial resources, um, and we can support them. So our enterprise team is presently 17 staff um, at various levels. Um, once we're fully fleshed out over hopefully the next year, we'll be at 22. So for students, there will be jobs opening up in my group at the enterprise team over the next year, I would expect. Um, so stay tuned. Um, and one of the other things that's really interesting, and I'll come back to later in the talk, is GIS really got to, and geospatial and remote sensing, got to really shine as we've gone through the COVID pandemic. Because what we realized is, when everyone was stuck in work from home or work remote um, and not able to go out in the field, we had to find ways to do things that we may have traditionally sent people out on the ground and figure out how to do that remotely so that we could all be socially distanced and safe um, and still do all the things the county is expected to do for its constituents. Um, and that's where I think remote sensing really comes into play for a government uh, any government agency, the county or otherwise, uh, is that we can take what would be traditionally field-based work, sending somebody out there in a county truck to go visit some place and look at it and record data about it and then bring it back and put it into a computer database somewhere and then you know do something with it, make decisions, do analysis. A lot of government work, as you can imagine, um, traditionally is done by people driving around in trucks or cars um, and more and more electric cars. Uh, we're trying to be good there. Um, but even that, I'll just give a quick example. When I first came to the county, I went around and talked to as many of the department leads as I could to find out what do they do? What's their sort of day-to-day -day business and how GIS or remote sensing could help them. Um, and one of the things I learned very early, it's not, it's more of a geospatial than a remote sensing was, uh, I was talking to one department who has to send out inspectors. It was the ag agriculture weights and measures. These are the folks who go out and check gas pumps, really give you a gallon of gas, or the scale at the grocery store really gives you a pound of grapes. They put those little seals on all those things that say this was you know, checked by the county, and it really gives you the measured amount you, you're, you're paying for. Well, you know, somebody has to drive around and do that. Um, and they have to visit every store with a scale, every gas pump, every everything on some cycle said, well, how do you manage the assignments? Oh, well, we have these, uh, these, they have these little racks on the wall with note cards in them. They said, well, these are all the note cards that are each all the places and we, we sort of shuffle the cards and we assign, here's your deck, here's your deck, here's your deck, that's your work for today. Said, so you don't do any route plan. You don't know where to go, when to go, you know, what the optimal route is. You just give us a stack of cards and go. Yeah, and, and I said, and how's that work for you? Well, I said, well, first of all, we don't send anyone out until after 10 in the morning, because if you go early, you get caught up in all the school traffic of parents dropping off kids at school, and they got to be back in the office by 3, because, you know, by 2.30, all the parents are picking their kids up at school. So basically, we can work between about 10 and 2 in the field, and the, the morning and the afternoon, we do the data entry in the office. So said, well, that seems silly. I bet you could do better with that. Um, I later, you know, even more recently, like a month ago, found out our mail services in the county do the same thing, except they're fancy. They print out data out of a, on a Word document. 
and hand that out to each mail delivery person every day. If something changes in the middle of the day, it's like, what do you do? Oh, we call them on their cell phone and say, hey, Frank, can you swing by this department's office and they have a special package they need picked up? They have no idea where Frank is. They have no idea if he's close to that place, if the traffic is bad or good. They just call somebody and say, hey, pick this up. We think you're in that area because that was on your list for today. So for those who know GIS and routing, you know, it's like, well, duh, there's an easy thing. So that little picture up in the corner is an example that COVID actually generated. Um, we were looking at, well, actually it was a little bit before COVID. We were looking at the idea of hoteling or, or working at like WeWorks types of locations, letting people work in an office other than their department office. So we did a optimization model to look at all 110,000 employees, where they live, and where they could ideally work to minimize the drive time and the fuel and the carbon emissions and all that. And then we use that to pick the buildings where people could I, you know, say, okay, instead of going to my office today, I can go to this other office and get a cubicle and a, and a plug and an internet connection and work somewhere else you know, today that's closer to meetings I have or other things. So we've done a lot of route optimization, COVID and fires and other things lead us to do that to figure out who's you know, available to get to a certain area to help at a vaccination facility or a testing facility, or where do we need more of those? Uh, when we have fires, we can look at where all of our employees are that might be affected by the fire. So we know those people can't be, maybe aren't as available to work because they're evacuating their family or something like that. Or we need to send people in for a recovery center who can we get their quickest and most efficiently based on So now everything we do for staffing related stuff, we run a weekly routing optimization against the county HR database. So we know where everyone lives and where they work and where they may be needed in a special emergency. And we can optimize that and we keep that up to date. Uh, so that's kind of a, you know, a quick example of optimization from a geospatial perspective. So why do we care about maps and why? It should be obvious, right? Um, everything we do happens in space. A lot of our things are obvious geospatial things. We have facilities like parks, you know, land areas we manage. We have facilities like buildings that people need to find and access, clinics, schools, libraries. Um, we use it to do grant funding processes. So I was at the beginning of class, I was talking about the broadband stuff. Um, you know, we have a lot of parts of the county where there's poor broadband access. Well, how do we figure that out and how do we figure out how to improve that? Well, that's a geospatial problem. We need to know where the low-income underserved communities are. We need to know where the fiber lines are. We need to know where Wi-Fi signals, signals can travel based on topography and building heights. So we can conceptually figure out like where to put an antenna if we're going to do wireless. Um, so we've done a lot of that modeling around broadband. I don't know the dollar amount, but I just heard it this morning. We just got approval from the board that we're going to be providing public Wi-Fi to low-income underserved communities in, across the county by deploying county-provided wireless internet service. So basically, we're going to start using geospatial to determine where to mount the antennas to essentially flood that neighborhood that needs internet access with free Wi-Fi. And it's going to be done in a public-private partnership. We're not going to actually build all that stuff. That'll be the vendors. But we're going to basically force those companies that won't commercially see profit margins in those neighborhoods 
to go in, we're going to pay them to do it. And then those communities will get free or very cheap internet. Um, that'll take some time to roll out, but we're starting that project. GIS was essential, geospatial modeling, and by extension, the remote sensing to get the 3D models of the topography and the buildings and all that stuff, essential to doing that kind of analysis. Um, there's more mundane things, like we want to know who, whose property has what value so we can get our taxes, because that's where our money in government comes from, is tax assessments, right? Um, there's uh, a stormwater uh, fee that passed in LA County a few years ago, Measure W. If you are a homeowner, you may know of this. Um, you pay a certain small fee on your property based on the impermeable surface area that your property has. So if you have, you know, a thousand square foot parcel, that'd be really small. A 5,000 square foot parcel, I don't know. And 23% of it is impermeable, meaning roofs, pavement, things like that, versus grass, dirt, things like that, where the water can infiltrate. You pay a per square foot fee on the impermeable part. How did we do that? Imagery, remote sensing, image classification. You look at the, and how do we update that? We do it again. So lots of things like that where this stuff comes into play. I could go on for three years, but we don't have to. Um, as I said, what we do is always location-based. Um, you know, everything happens at an address, a parcel, a, you know, a jurisdictional area, you know, a park boundary, a city boundary, a county boundary. Um, and what's interesting, and I alluded to earlier, is a lot of the people who do data in government don't think of it as geospatial. They think of it as a data set that they stuck in Excel. Um, and just as a, a, an aside, some of you have probably heard me complain about this before, Excel is not a database. Excel is a spreadsheet. It's done, it was built to do accounting. Use a database if you want databases. Uh, but I haven't got that message to 110,000 county staff. 90% of the time when somebody comes to our team and wants to do some kind of an analysis involving maps, they hand us a spreadsheet. But here's our data. And it's a really badly formatted, non-normalized, non-clean spreadsheet that needs a lot of work. So, you know, we try to help people, educate people that spreadsheets aren't necessarily the best. Over the last few years, we've transitioned many of those departments and those staff to use something like Survey123, you know, the data collection tool to collect their data. And then it goes into a database and it's ready to map and it's great. Um, you know, so you know, it's a never-ending process. But what, what's come of that is almost everyone's starting to see, oh yeah, when we go collect some data on trees in the park or the homeless count or whatever it might be, that's all happening in space. We should capture an address or a lat long or a coordinate of some, you know, or a location of some sort. And that should be part of the data set. Then it can be correlated back against all these other data sets. Um, and when they don't have that, we can do the geocoding to, to sort of force that, right? We get the data set or the Excel sheet and we do the cleanup and the geocoding. And then we can say, oh, okay, well, those points, now we know they're in that park, they're in that neighborhood, they're in that jurisdiction. Um, and that makes it well, you know, a lot more useful in a lot of ways. Um, a couple other things I'll touch on just on the general geospatial, and then I'll get into the little sensing stuff. Um, we have a, a system called CAMS, um, Countywide Address Management System. It's the links is here, and I'll, I'll share the links, Ken, with and the slides with you to share with your members. Um, 
But this is a publicly available, there's web services and endpoints, or you can just uh, access it directly to find addresses anywhere in the county. Now, why do we care about addresses in a system like this that serves up? Because now when we get a 911 call, we can find where to go. When we wanna go do a maintenance call on a, you know, a, a pothole, we can find where that is. Uh, whatever that might be, every address is, you know, we need to know where it is. Um, and while it may not seem obvious, addresses change really frequently in our, in our, in across the county as large as ours. There's new subdivisions being built in the outlying unincorporated areas all the time. So every time somebody builds a new subdivision, there's, you know, a few hundred new addresses. We have to get those in. If it happens in a incorporated city, one of the eight cities, the city has to get that update to the county and then the county can update it because ultimately the county is the authoritative source. We're responsible to have all the addresses right. We're responsible to roll those up to the state and the national 911 systems and all that other stuff. So we have to coordinate across not just our own people, but also 88 cities. Um, it's, a, it's never perfect, and, but it's, you know, it keeps getting better is what I'd say. But this system has a public facing website and services and you can hit this thing to find an address in the county. Sometimes, well, usually more quickly than that address will show up on your Apple map or your Google map on your phone, because guess where they get their addresses for their maps from there. So we update ours and then once a year or something, they come in and hit our services and say, hey, we're, we wanna do a pull of your full data set. And we say, okay, great. Um, and then they, they update their maps. So, you know, and that's true all over the country. Those kinds of commercial systems take government data from the local jurisdictions, roll it up, you know, package it in their pretty interface and, and then they share it out. So, you know, a couple other mapping examples. Um, Bob Catfire a couple of years ago now, or a year and a half, I guess it was. You know, we use this to also look at, you know, combined with the fire perimeter mapping that comes from airborne remote sensing and the on the ground mapping and knowing the addresses and the types of, you know, buildings and stuff, where do we need to do evacuation? Where do we repopulate when things are getting better after things calm down? I'm sure the same thing is driving what's going on in Florida right now with Hurricane uh, Ian. You know, there's, if you watch the news at all, they talk about evacuation zones A through like T, know your zone. I, I don't know, anyone watch the Weather Channel? I mean, there were actually some, they were trying to show where on the website to find your zone. It's like four or five menus deep. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how is anyone gonna find this? And then the newscaster says, and if you have older parents who don't know how to use the internet, you need to help them. I'm like, yeah, because even somebody who knows the internet would have a hard time figuring this out. Uh, we've tried to do something a little cleaner than that um, and easier, but when we have these emergencies, we now roll out web maps. People can type in their address and it says, yeah, you need to evacuate or no, you can't, you don't need to evacuate yet, but be ready or hey, you can go back now. Um, the color codings of apps. And, and we do this by pre-analyzing risk zones and, and traffic patterns and access routes. So we can kind of manage that. Uh, but the emergency operations office really drives that, not, not the enterprise GIS, but it's all built in. We can figure out where we need shelters, you know, and other things. And you know, hopefully you haven't had to deal with fires, but if you had, or if you do, you know, this shelter with a little puppy on it will let you bring your pet. Whereas maybe, uh, you know, this shelter with a little horse on it will let you bring your horse. You know, so 
people in rural areas with different types of livestock or animals need to know if I'm evacuating and I'm bringing animals, where can I take them? You know, where's a place I can put my horses for a week while I, you know, ride this thing out? Where do I go? Where does my, you know, where can I go with my pet if I have a cat or a dog? So that's kind of, you know, the stuff we, we build into these systems. Um, COVID, of course, drove a lot of stuff. I'm not going to dwell on it too much because we're all sick of COVID, but we had a whole bunch of applications. Some have remained since COVID because of other value they have. I mean, testing sites, you know, and COVID dashboards are less important, but access to things like um, beaches and trail closures during COVID now is just a good mapping tool for where are beaches and trails I might want to go visit. You know, um, cooling centers certainly are an ongoing issue. Um, we have things on food resources and other things. So, you know, if I'm looking for food resources, where can I go to get that stuff? Um, so lots of dashboards that we spun up through COVID um, came out of all these geospatial. And then I, I already alluded to the digital divide a little bit. This is actually the map, if you're curious. Based on the FCC data I was complaining about earlier in class before we started this part, um, the darker the purple, the higher population with no internet access. It's not that they don't have it because they just don't want to have it. It's because it's not there. You know, you can't get internet in most of these places. And if you look here, south, you know, south of LA, south central, you know, some of the, you know, the valley, um, not the rich people on the coast, you know, not the rich people in some of the other suburbs. You know, the internet providers are happy to give them fiber for, you know, 80, 100 bucks a month. But those other places can't pay for it, so that's why they don't have it. You know, they're not going to run the infrastructure to serve it. So again, that's where we're going to go. Um, but what we did in COVID, and again, something that'll evolve from that, is early on, everyone's like, where can I get on Wi-Fi? My kids got homework they need to do. They need to log into school. I need to log in to apply for some assistance or whatever. We built this Wi-Fi locator. Um, to help people figure out Wi-Fi. It's a very simple web application where we scraped public and, and private sources for where's our free Wi-Fi. Um, in all the, uh, the boring yellow and green dots, yellow is McDonald's, green is Starbucks. So it also tells where everyone tells that Starbucks is in the county. Uh, but they're all free Wi-Fi. So we were letting people know. You could search by distance and say, hey, show me all the Wi-Fi within a mile of my address. And it would give you you know, in the, in the list there, places you could go. Um, we did this in English and Spanish. So for those who might be interested in math, more for the students, Esri has localization and a lot of their apps, you can change, you can code into your apps and change it to any language you want. It changes all the buttons, all the menus. It doesn't change your own content. So your database stays in English if it's created in English, but you can have another column translated to another language and change the pop-up to pull that other column. So COVID forced us to learn how to do multilingual mapping applications, which was kind of challenging. It's getting better. So that's another tool. This one will evolve, you know, and be retained over time because people always want Wi-Fi. Um, and then location analytics. A lot of this was what fed into early on just getting kids to Wi-Fi for school. But again, it's going to feed into some of these other analyses for public-facing Wi-Fi we're going to be spinning up. Um, you know, developing a 15 minute walk zone around metro stations. So if we can get you know, somebody to the station, you know, 
where you know where can they go within 15 minutes if we can get if we put wi-fi at a library who can get there within 15 minutes either from their house or a nearby station um, so we did a lot of these analytics to drive that so, um, so this is all the metro stations in gray 15 minute walks and these are all like public wi-fi and parks in blue so you can see well okay there's only a few places over here they intersect this doesn't really help you but you can get on the bus here Go out here, get Wi-Fi. That may not be ideal, so maybe we should get some Wi-Fi you know, closer into the city. So that's what we're working on. Okay, so there's a million things we can do with giant geospatial data. We know that, right? Um, so the question is, where do we get the data? And of course, the analysis we do is only as good as the data we feed it, right? If we have lousy data, like the FCC broadband data is now, tells me. For those who weren't here when I said it earlier, if there's a house in a census tract that can get access to internet within seven days of you calling the service provider, they have Wi-Fi, high-speed Wi-Fi in that entire census tract. That's what the FCC currently says. So when you look at an internet broadband coverage map of the United States or LA County, everybody has high-speed internet. It's like, well, not really. You know, how do you get past that problem? That's bad data, so you can't make good choices or good decisions about how that's done. Um, so we want to look for better data. So there is the old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground approach, and we can go out there and collect data on paper, still some do, on mobile apps, all that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of this that happens, right? You go to a clinic and you check in and they ask for your address and some other demographic information, and that ends up in some database or you go get a permit for a building permit to you know, put a deck on the back of your house, that ends up in a database somewhere with your address and then the assessor's office knows and they can up your assessment and all that. Um, you know, so lots of data just comes in through the traditional channels um, and that's not gonna go away. But I think for us, especially since I've been with the county now four and a half years or so, one of the things that I said when I came into the county, actually in my interviews, was you guys have some amazing remote sensing programs in LA County and you don't leverage them. You collect a lot of data with airplanes, primarily at that time. Now we're getting into drones and you know, and their satellites too. Um, and you're not you're not getting the value that you invest in this stuff. So we should look for ways to improve that. Um, I'm going to start just because of scale of drones um, and you know, the official term is SUAS. Everyone knows that, right? Small unpersoned aerial systems. Because uh, you can't ride these things. They're not air taxis yet. Although I guess Ken says they're going to make these hybrid uh, cars that fly soon. So then we'll have our air taxis. I've seen them somewhere up there on, on the internet. They look very cool. I'm not going to ride it. Um, <laughs> that's just me. So we have a bunch of county departments that have started using drones over the last few years. I would say first it was emergency services, it was fire and sheriff. Um, and you know, in general terms, their uses of drones is very different than most of us who do mapping and analysis of, it, of, of data, because in a fire situation or a policing situation, you're usually using the drone to collect real-time data got a camera that's feeding back to the, the pilot and you're looking at the data coming in on the screen or in the command center because you're watching the fire or you're watching the crowd control or whatever it is or the bad guy that you're chasing. 
kind of like what you see on the nightly news with the helicopters following, you know, the car chase every night. I still don't get that. Um, but as we started talking to those departments and then others getting interested, you know, I started trying to explain to them, if you fly your drone the right way, you do overlapping, you know, uh, images like I showed you in the earlier lecture, you know, that, so you get the stereo, you get the complete coverage, you can do point clouds and, and you know, and mapping from that, there's a lot more possibilities. Um, so other departments now are starting to use drones. Public Works um, is one of our big ones. They use it in a lot of contexts for project level management um, and planning. Um, our regional planning department's got a whole big drone program going. I think they have a dozen drones now and drone and a bunch of people have their 107 licenses so they can fly. Um, I think fire has, you know, a couple dozen people with licenses and they have a bunch of drones uh, as well. So they're, they're starting to be all over the place. So what it means is we've got a great platform for flying sensors around in different ways. Uh, but also a real need for education around what do you do with these images once you capture them? It's one thing to get the imagery, it's another thing to actually, your camera's ringing. No worries. Okay. Um, so just a couple of quick examples. Um, Wolsey Fire, which was, uh, I guess, four years ago now, four years ago this last November, it's the first fire I was here. Um, that was the first time the fire department was really seriously viewing drone work. Um, so they'd go out and, and they weren't going to monitor the fire progression. They do that from aircraft still, um, which makes sense because fires are big, but they were doing it for damage assessment. So here's an example. This is an area up near Malibu, uh, neighborhood in a place called Trancas Canyon. If anyone happens to know where that is, I can point to it on a map, but until um, we went there, I wouldn't have been able to tell you either. But what you can see here, just in the, the imagery that's on the lower right is, this is a neighborhood in a fairly steep canyon with a dead end road, one way in, one way out. You know, it, it dead ends up at the top of the canyon, then it sits down at the bottom. There's a couple of side streets that, you know, go up into some side canyons, but basically everything's in there. Um, and you can see just from looking at that image, wow, you know, you lose the vegetation there, you're gonna have landslide risk because there's lots of steep slopes with bare soil now. And it, you can't see it probably that well in the picture here, but if you look closely, you can actually see houses are either 100% intact, partially damaged or fully destroyed pretty easily. And where this became really important from a, a practical sense was before the Woolsey fire, before we were flying imagery, the damage assessments that we had to do to assess the status of a home and maybe give them permits to do cleanup and rebuilding, which you have to wait for before you can do any of that stuff, was very slow because it involved people physically going and looking at every house on the ground. Now we can go fly. We flew this whole canyon. I don't know how many houses, probably you know, 80 houses in that canyon. We flew it in half an hour. We came back to the office, we could process out that 3D model in a, you know, a couple hours, get the data ready. And an analyst could go in and look at the imagery and pick out the damage or destroyed houses you know, the same day. And they didn't have to drive out there house by house with notebooks and write down a bunch of stuff. This is now more typical of how we can do damage assessments after emergencies, which is really good because it's quicker to do it, which means people get their permits to clean up and rebuild and their, you know, their insurance stuff can go through quicker. 
So it's better for everybody. It's not just about making us get done quicker. It's about the constituency that we're serving be able to get back on with their lives as quickly as possible. So um, it was pretty interesting. And you know, we got these fire guys all excited about drones and mapping and GIS. Um, and they had never done this stuff before that fire. So that was kind of exciting. Another place has been picked up by our planning department is in enforcement for property inspections around different kinds of things for permitting, illegal dumping, um, for looking at things on rooftops like uh, cooling towers or cell phone antennas or other infrastructure that are on tops of buildings um, in various types. Um, you know, when you want to look at things on a site like this junkyard, or I guess it's a metals recycling facility, I should use the right term. Um, you know, somebody has to go out there and walk around and look for stuff and make sure it's in compliance or it's not, you know, if something's not right and what they're going to write up. Same kind of thing here. Um, you know, they can fly a site with a drone, get a, a full record, which of course for enforcement support is important because now you have a permanent record. We went on this day, we captured this data, it's there. We've got this unbiased you know, view of the data set that we can go back to, say, if there's a, a debate about whether that was really going on. But the thing in the right-hand picture that was most interesting for our enforcement folks in planning was they noticed something that they would not have noticed walking around on the ground. They were on the ground there because they were flying the drones and they were doing the site inspection at the same time. They saw this stuff in the circle, which you can't see it from where you sit very well, but that's gas tanks from cars that they would take off the cars, chuck up on the roof of the building so no one can see them on the ground. Those are hazardous waste because gas tanks, by definition, they had fuel in them, they're hazardous waste. They got away with something like that, presumably for many years, because when an inspector came out, they couldn't see them. They were up on the roof. But now that they fly a drone over the site, they're like, hey, what's that? Oh, let's zoom in. Oh, those are a bunch of gas tanks. We have a problem here. So it started to make both the efficiency better, but also the opportunity to find things that were hard to find or dangerous to find. You might not even want to climb up there on a ladder to look for that, because that looks like a pretty rickety building. Uh, now we can start to see that. Now, what's missing in this step of enforcement, because it's difficult, at least right now, is automating that. So it's one thing to go fly the imagery at a site like this and say, we have an enforcement violation that we need to write up and deal with. But it'd be great if we could get the machine learning to actually identify that's an anomalous you know, feature in the, in the site, and we should be able to flag that automatically. We're not there yet, but you know, that could be a, a, you know, a future application. So this is still in the case of the damage assessment for fire, in the case of these you know, illegal you know, dumping situations, there's still a lot of manual work, but the difference is now you can have people do this at their desktop in the office. So one inspector can virtually visit multiple sites flown by maybe a, you know, a technician with a drone license going out to a bunch of sites over the course of a week and saying, okay, here's you know, 50 sites I flew last week. And now, you know, the, the assessor, you know, the planning department folks can just look at those images sitting in the office. They don't have to all go out there multiple times and revisit and all that stuff. So the other place, I, I don't know, a picture of a property approach, which is another interesting one. I was surprised to learn about when I came to government. 
people who live up against parks, like, I don't know, you know, county parks, Griffith Park, wherever, if you watch their property over the years, it often grows into the park. They just keep sort of pushing their backyard further and further into the public space. Um, and again, hard thing to find if you're not, you know, if you're not out there in their yard looking at it, right? I mean, there's no reason somebody from Parks and Rec is going to go to your house, knock on the door, and say, "Hey, can I look at your backyard? You know, and see if you went into the park, for, you know, land uh, extended your yard further out than it was supposed to go." But now you get aerial imagery over, and you can get multiple images over time. You can overlay the property boundary on that imagery and see if, hey, the lawn's 20 feet further beyond the boundary line than it's supposed to be, and that's on public land in a park. Now we know there's a problem. You don't have to ever go to your house. In fact, we can automatically you know, look at those kinds of things with image classification and say, this looks like a change that we need to be concerned about. So we don't have to go down the row of every house on the street to check it. We just look at the imagery. And we look at last year's imagery, this year's imagery, next year's imagery, and we can find out. So for these encroachments, which I was shocked to learn people would do that, but apparently they do, um, that's a great application of remote sensing. Uh, I'm going to give a quick example from the last cohort here in the program. Um, you may have heard there is a homelessness population issue around LA County. We're not unique, but we're, we get a lot of press locally for it. Um, and in fact, I think just what in the last week or so, there was a, some stuff in the news about maybe the homeless count didn't do a very good job because somewhere up near Venice Beach, they missed like all the homeless people and said there were zero. And that's a place that's well known to have a ton of people that aren't, you know, that are on the streets and not, not you know, there's more than zero for sure. Um, so we know the homeless count traditionally has been questionable, not because it's intentional necessarily, it's just it's done by people going out in the field with tablets or actually before COVID with paper and tallying up how many tents or people they see sleeping on the streets on a given night in January each year. So it's a very manual process. It's a one day or two day snapshot at, the, you know, at a certain time of year. And that's how we get our estimates. So again, last year, as, as we were looking at this um, in the county and I brought it to the cohort here, I said, well, could we do a better job? And it's not just the homeless count that we do traditionally, which is done only by volunteers who drive the streets or walk the streets. So if you're hiding behind a building, not on the street, or you're in a park or in a wash along one of the rivers, they never, they don't go walk those channels. They don't go through the parks in the middle of night looking for people sleeping under trees or behind bushes. They just go on the streets. So anyone hiding out, so to speak, in those other kinds of places is automatically being messed. And even on the streets where you might see their tent or their, you know, their, their structure, um, you know, it's only as good as the people who can walk down the street and tally them. So we did an, ex uh, an experiment with uh, a team last year in this program where we wanted to look at in these off-road areas, um, in particular places that are at risk of flood or fire, if, if there were a flood or a fire coming through and you've got a whole population of people you know, in an encampment, uh, you want to know they're there so you can evacuate them before they wash away, before they you know, are caught up in a fire. So 
this is just a one tile, but you can see on the left here, that's just the ortho image from a drone um, over an area near the Whittier Narrows. And you can see very clearly there's a bunch of tents and tarps and things, there's trash and other stuff scattered in among the trees. Could we teach the computer through machine learning methods to extract out the structures that might be actually where people are living? Um, so they did a lot of great research and, and coding and writing all the scripts and stuff to do it, to take that raw image, convert it to a hue saturation value image, which is just a recoding of the image in essence, and then doing some masking to take out things that were clearly not candidates for structures that a homeless individual might be living in, and then a blob detection filter um, that looked for big enough blobs that could actually be structures. And this worked pretty darn well. So now the next step is going to be for us to try and implement this, you know, on a larger scale. Yeah. But if this works in places where you have encampments that are occluded by vegetation or other stuff, you know, under trees, um, it certainly should work well in open few encampments or, or you know, along the streets or the sidewalks. So you know, again, an opportunity to move from field-based work to automated remote sensing-based work. It's not going to be perfect, but it's probably going to be better than missing all of that speech, you know, which we saw last week. Oops, okay, so I want to turn uh, a little bit to our premier program in the county called LARIAC. Um, the students are at least a little bit familiar with this already. So LARIAC is our Los Angeles Region Imagery Acquisition Consortium. It's been around for a while now, but what it is in a nutshell in that blurb at the top is we have a consortium of many of our cities, universities, community colleges, other governmental agencies that about 15 years ago now uh, came together to say, you know, to say, hey, instead of us all collecting our own imagery on our own timeframes at our own costs and our own specs and scales and systems, why don't we all pool resources, come together and get one consistent imagery data set across all 4,000 miles of the county. And then we'll share it. And that way it, we don't have gaps when we cross jurisdictional boundaries, all the imagery is the same date, the same, the same scale, the same bands, everything's consistent. Um, so it's an efficiency thing, it's a consistency thing, it's a comparison over time thing that just is much more efficient. Um, and everyone was using aerial imagery already, right? Most of the, at least the larger cities across the county would contract for imagery, the county would, Caltrans would, you know, all these big government agencies, Metro and so on. So coming together made sense, which you can see on the left, you guys saw it earlier, um, is just one tile of ortho imagery in a, a false color infrared. So we can see the vegetation in red. We can see the artificial turf in the center is green because it's not real vegetation. You see the houses and the roads and all these other structures. So we have a good basis of data. Um, the other thing Lariat gives us though is this uh, web tool called Connect Explorer that lets us do a lot of analytics against the imagery just in a web browser or on a mobile app in the field. So either way, if I'm in the field, I can pull that same thing up based on my GPS. It'll show me where I am. And I can pull up imagery going back to the beginning of Lariac. So I can look at a time series of imagery anywhere in the county across you know, a dozen or so years. 
I can make measurements directly on the imagery in length, width, height, area, slope, planimetric distance, all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's a whole bunch of tools. You can see some of them in that toolbox. Uh, and I can do, you know, comparisons between dates side by side, all kinds of fun stuff. I can also annotate and add, you know, information on top of this to build my own database. So if I'm doing field work or desktop work, I can now use this sort of an interface to make measurements, add information, annotate things, and build out a database. Um, and this is available to all of our Lariat members. So all the cities, the county employees, all the US students at Long Beach is a Lariat member. Um, you all have access to this. Um, and it's the entire county over a whole bunch of years of Lariat. So it's pretty cool. So, you know, as I said, it's it's a little more than 15 years now that it's it's been going uh, since 2005. Um, and there's imagery collected in early years every three years. So um, they flew every third year near the beginning of the year around January through March timeframe and did that countywide collect. So we're in our sixth cycle concluding this year. But what's changed in the last couple of cycles, Laryx 5 and 6, is we started doing more frequent captures. So in Laryx 5, we did a couple extra captures. In Laryx 6, we did, um, I think, well, we did our primary capture and then we did four more. So we did like different seasons, different and, and multiple times per year. Our most recent collect was actually finished about a month ago. So you can see what, you know, somewhere in LA County it looked like in, you know, August or September, you know, as opposed to January or last year or 10 years ago. Um, so great for doing change analysis. Um, you know, as I said, we have a, our members you know, are generally pretty stable. Some new ones come in, sometimes people skip a cycle. But the advantage of a program like this you know, um, is obvious. We save money by collaborating and pooling resources. We save overhead a lot. Um, but more importantly, I think is we're able to share the analysis, the best practices, the utility of this data across all these members. So we have an annual, typically, not in COVID time, but typically an annual meeting of the members the cities and the counties and the other members come together and share things. We do trainings and, and other things. Um, it's really cool. And we derive a number of products from Larry Act that are really useful too. I'll talk a little bit about some of those. So one of the, you know, the valuable things out of Larry Act is we get topographic models of the county. So that's done two different ways. Um, in the typical Larry Act cycle, this is a photogrammetric point cloud-based model. So again, we're getting high overlap stereo coverage across the county. We get two foot contours countywide. That's useful. And then we can change analysis when that is affected by major events, whether that's a landslide or that's a construction project. If there's big earth moving operations, a new subdivision and they regrade everything, you now we can get that updated topography out of the next flight with the photogrammetric method. On occasion, we do LIDAR flights. So LIDAR being the laser profiling of the landscape. Then we get the point cloud from the, from the LIDAR. The advantage there being it gets penetration through tree canopy, it gets to the ground everywhere pretty much. So we get a more accurate you know, base map or surface topography. And with LIDAR, we also then get top, you know, first return, top of canopy, top of buildings. We get you know, more accurate heights and other measurements out of it in that sense. So LIDAR is expensive. Um, 
We don't have any LiDAR in space yet. Some of you guys maybe can help us with that because uh, it's an active sensor, it's hard to do. Um, the US Geological Survey will is has a program called 3DEP that I'm involved with that, that committee. Um, that's goal is to have LiDAR across the entire United States at you know, no gaps. Um, I think it's by 2026 or eight, I forget the year. Um, but we have, and then to have a, a repeat on a regular enough basis to be useful. So we're on the cusp here in LA County of being up for another LiDAR flight probably in 2023 or 2024. So we'll do that, a new one. Um, and when we do a new one, it'll be a higher quality flight. Um, last time we flew two points per square meter, QL2 data. Next time we're gonna do QL1 data, that'll be eight points per square meter. So we'll get more, you know, more points hitting the ground um, you know, more, you know, more detail out of that data set. So we'll be able to get more, you know, more resolution out of the library and all the derived products that can come from that building footprints, building heights, tree canopy heights, you know, detailed ground topography and all the others. The other thing we did, um, it's been a few years on the right is a land cover classification map. This is a very typical remote sensing product, you know, space borne systems. We've done this with Landsat for a long time. Um, this is just a, a more detailed one from aerial imagery. Um, so this is the map that led to the assessments for Measure W for the impermeable surface fee assessments. So we took a land cover classification to categorize, you know, different kinds of land cover as shown here. But then the Public Works Stormwater Division took those data and just binned them into permeable and impermeable. So if it was a vegetation type or a water type that's all permeable if it was a structure or a paved surface that's impermeable and kind of bend those out to, to build that fee assessment and then cross-reference that against parcels got square footage and tallied up everybody's fees now of course that's not a static thing right you people change what's going on on their property so this is another place where we're going to have to do regular updates through machine learning methods to train and classify every pixel in the county and reallocate how much impermeable surface every parcel has on some regular basis. So that's a process we'll work out the next iteration of that now. And that's drawn up with Lariat imagery. So that's that's kind of a practical use. Um, I assume most of you know what this is. Dr. Stadium, no one's gonna yell it out. It's audio participation. Um, but what comes out of here, the yellow outline, um, this is one of our derived products that we pull from the imagery. Well, that's a building outline. A stadium is kind of a weird thing to call a building, but it is, it's a structure. Um, and you can see, even though we've got heavy shadowing, um, because we've got lots of image tiles that overlap, we can find the edges of the buildings from the imagery. So if it's shadowed here, it's not shadowed in the next one, stuff like that. But the other thing we do is a change analysis. Every three years that we do our building footprints, we also look at, is it a building that was there last time? It's outlined in yellow. Is it a new structure? It's in green, some of those. Is it a, it, there's not a stadium, I don't think it showed up. Is there a structure missing? Something was demolished or removed in some form. It'll put the old outline there in red and say, okay, that one's not there anymore. So we have a, a regular automated process where we get new building footprints every three years and we can see 
significant changes, additions, deletions to buildings. Again, the assessor's office loves this for saying, oh, you added on to your house and you didn't tell us. We need to reassess you or, you know, or you didn't have a permit, or, you know, whatever. So there's all kinds of things there that are practical, but it's also useful for getting, you know, other planning things, as I said, you know, looking at building heights, looking at building uh, zoning, all, all this other stuff. So again, LIDAR and, and imagery from Lariac sort of come up with you know, that, those derived products. So change assessment, I'll just show you a quick few images. So this is downtown LA, Hall Administration, Grand Park, uh, you know, the, what is that, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion over there, and can't see it in this image, but down on the left would be LA City Hall, um, at the other end of the park. So here I'm just going through a series of years um, of development between 2002 and roughly the present, just to give you an idea, you can see the change over time as we look at different images. They're not all aligned here because I just did quick screenshots, but um, what you can see as we get into the mid 2000s is that park starts getting ripped up. They did a major redevelopment of the park downtown there outside of the whole administration. Um, and then they brought it back and put in these new fountains in the middle. Now, and what you can see here too is these are oblique images. One of the other cool things with Lariac, these are airplane based or airborne based image collections. The camera system that our vendor flies for this has both an ortho straight down looking camera and oblique 45 degree angle looking cameras in all four cardinal directions. So we can look at every location of the county from all four directions and sort of spin around that and see each side of a building or each side of a hill or whatever it might be. And we can still do all the measurements I alluded to earlier. I can measure you know, the height, the slope, the distance, the area, all that stuff off the imagery directly. Or if you want to bring this stuff into image processing software and do fancy stuff with you know, Schema and that as well. So, that's an option. so you can sort of see change over time. Yeah, like this big parking lot sort of just left to center. You can see that got, you know, ripped down and made into new, you know, new buildings. So lots of change stuff by having these frequent, regular, consistent image distances. Um, the Bobcat fire I alluded to earlier, um, it was our, kind of our most recent big fire. Uh, nice picture off of Wikipedia to give credit to some random person who took it. Um, but what I wanna show you here is the other interesting thing of change detection. So this is the parking lot at Devil's Punch Bowl. Anyone ever go there hiking? Know the area, okay, one person. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a nice area up in the uh, National Forest, it's a county park. And you can see in this picture, there's, you know, some buildings there. There's an, uh, there's an amphitheater up here, you know, north of the parking lot, there's a couple of buildings, visitor center, storage buildings, things like that, and a park lot. Well, the Bobcat Fire came through this area, um, and the Parks Department people called me up like the day it happened, it said, do we have any imagery to, you know, to, to look at damage assessment? Well, now, had this been the Woolsey fire three years earlier, I would have said, well, if you can get somebody out there with a drone to fly it, we would, <laughs> you know, and then you could do the damage assessment or whatever you want. But in this one, I could say, oh, I worked with one of our uh, corporate, you know, vendors out there called Vexcel Imaging. They're one of the big national uh, you know, aerial survey companies, imaging companies. 
They have a program called Gray Sky where they free for governments give free data post-emergency. Um, and it's just available. And we and we are hooked up to their web service and we can grab the imagery right now. What the Gray Sky program is, um, you know, just informational, they they call it Gray Sky because they put their planes up while the skies are still smoky. They don't wait for blue sky conditions, which would be your ideal for remote sensing, right? You don't want haze and scatter and all that stuff. But in an emergency, you don't want to wait for the smoke to clear in the blue skies. So they fly literally as soon as they can safely get a plane in the air that doesn't interfere with fire operations, usually within a day or two. So the gray sky program then produces the imagery. And I just have this as a screenshot from the swipe tool. And they do four bands. So you get red, green, blue, and then your infrared. So this is the false color infrared. And just glancing at, at this scale, you can already see some, some of what's going on. Now, the trees right there to the right of the parking lot are still, for the most part, looking pretty good. They're still green or red in this case because of the infrared reflectance. Um, if you look at some of the trees further out, and I'll scroll back. There were trees up, you know, around the amphitheater. They're a little brownish or greenish because they're not, you know, the brightest growth time of the year. But there's very little, other than a couple of wisps of reddishness in here. There's very little that looks like it's living anymore. So you can already see that. You can also, if you look closely, see some of the buildings changed. So there was a building, the one with the red dot on it, because hey, it's destroyed. You can see it. Um, and here's just a zoom in of the parking lot area. See it more closely. So, you know, this imagery, and this is a long drive to get out there. I don't know how, you know, how long it would take to send people to go out and do an on-ground assessment, you know, to get all the way out there, do the field work, come back, enter the data, blah, blah, blah. You know, we could do this from our desktops in the office, you know, pretty much a day or two after, you know, the event happened anyway. So from an efficiency standpoint, this kind of rapid imagery collection and rapid assessment uh, becomes a really powerful tool in emergencies, but not just emergencies. So, so this is a, a neat thing. And, and you know, I haven't looked at it yet, but Vexel's Gray Sky program, for those who are lucky to be in government like me, um, when you get access to it, you get access to their full national data set. So I can actually go home and look at uh, Hurricane Ian and see the damage assessment imagery probably later this weekend. They'll have imagery after that post-hurricane imagery up on their service, and I can just pull it up on my web map in Esri, and voila, it'll be fun. So maybe I'll show you something if I get time to look at it after that. Um, so a couple other things I want to touch on here. Oh, man, um, you know, there's other things we can do with remote sensing data. Obviously, we can look at you know other types of data, other perspectives. We can look at data extractions with feature extraction, machine learning in different ways. Um, obviously, just better efficiency and speed of processing. I've already touched on some of that, um, and some other applications. So I want to touch on some of those things we're moving towards um, and already starting to do. Um, one is street level imagery, which may not sound that interesting or foreign to you because you've seen Google Street View. Um, but in government, Google Street View is not that useful because their cameras aren't very good and they're not certified, corrected, and fully you know, measurable data. They're pretty pictures. This imagery comes from a vendor. We did a pilot study in Lariac with a couple of years ago now, and we're 
you know, we're going to put out an RFP to uh, vendors later this fall to do this countywide. This is street level imagery that is mapping grade. So there's a number of vendors out there that, that collect these 360 degree hemispherical images as they drive down the street. You've seen those cars driving around every so often. They also have LIDAR sensors on the roof of the car. So they get a 360 hemisphere of a 3D point cloud. So they can actually map the imagery to real space. And just like the Lariat imagery I showed you earlier, in these web tools they provide, you can measure heights, you can measure lengths, you can measure areas, you can measure distances within you know sub-centimeter accuracy because they're this particular company they're driving a 250 megapixel camera on the roof of the car and lidar systems and they're collecting that in you know every direction all the way around the car and you know the full hemisphere above so you can look up literally because i've done it you can look up at a street light and read the wattage code off the lamp and know what light bulb you need to take out there through the public works department to replace it you can know how high it is, so you know which cherry picker you need to get up that high. You can look at under a bridge, you know, and see if there's rust or damage or you know something going on. You can actually in these tools also flood the landscape to some height and see if I have clogged up sewers on this street and I have so much rainfall, am I going to end up flooding people's houses? If we're planning our our street cleaning or sewer, you know, entrapment cleaning. So what we've done for a long time from aerial imagery, now we're bringing actually down to the ground and looking at doing the same thing at the ground level, but at that high quality mapping grade that we're, we've been used to from the air. Um, here's a couple of other screenshots. Um, so these tools, just like aerial imagery, we can do all the feature extraction. Um, and we did again, some experiments. So every point on this upper right corner, um, the green dots are where a picture was taken. And so you can click on those and zoom to that picture. But every other color up there is an asset, a street light, a wheelchair ramp at a corner, a crosswalk sign, a street sign, a park bench, whatever's along the street that we see that we want to extract that. So using, again, typical sort of machine learning feature extraction methods, we can build an entire geospatial database of assets, street side assets and street in-street assets and nobody has to go in the field. We can map every street sign in the county. And instead of it taking literally years to go visit and revisit all those signs and decide if they need to be replaced or whatever it may be, we can drive the whole county and get that database generated in a matter of months. So our, we have, you know, like I said, we're gonna be putting out an RFP for vendors to bid on, but our expectation is we will drive in next summer, 10,000 miles of LA County unincorporated streets and alleys and everything, um, and get this kind of a database for every asset that we're interested in across the entire county. And because it's part of Lariat, we'll invite any of our cities that want to join in. You know, they can they can buy it and get their cities out at the same time. So I would expect over the next few years we'll see this kind of database regularly built for LA County. Uh, you know, probably every few years and update it. So the same kind of change analysis of street condition, asset condition, and so on will be, you know, will be much more readily available. The other thing that actually drove this though is this thing. That's a wheelchair ramp at the corner, right? Everyone can recognize that, I suspect. 
If you know, and I had to learn, um, anything about the Americans with Disabilities Act and the rules for street intersection curb cuts and ramps, they're super detailed. The slope of that ramp has to be, how deep it has to be, how wide the curb cut has to be. All those lines that you see over lane are measurements that have to be taken to determine if one of these crosswalk ramps is, is compliant with ADA standards. The way that's done, not just for LA, but every local government in the country right now is, they send a survey crew out. They set up their, their, you know, their survey equipment, they shut down the intersection or put up at least some cones to keep them getting run over, and they survey each one of these. And if you imagine, if you can think about how many of these there must be in the world, uh, your typical intersection potentially only has four if they're just at four corners. Some corners have one going on that street and one going on that street because they do the, you know, each right angle. So maybe you have eight of these ramps at a, at a four-way intersection. It can take a whole day for a survey crew to go do one intersection potentially if it's an eight, eight ramp intersection and if there might be some islands or boulevards in the middle, maybe even more. So there's no way to do it practically in a timely fashion. So again, using imagery and feature extraction and, and measurements and this kind of data is actually good enough. They've already done this in New York City. They drive twice a year and they remap every asset including their wheelchair. Now, they don't have the geography that we do. They don't have as many miles of road as we do. But that's our goal, is to, to move that way. Philadelphia does it too. Uh, so this is emerging technology just in the last few years that's really starting to come into the remote sensing realm. So it's not just flying up there. It's driving down here and, you know, and getting similar uh, tools out of this and similar analytics. Now, back to airborne, though, because that's where my heart is and many of yours. Um, the other thing we're looking at that's a big deal, not just in LA, but certainly it's big to us, is the tree canopy. So these are great, I'll call them cartoons, sort of. But actually, this is real data from somewhere in Kentucky. I borrowed from a friend who's at a company I won't name um, to map out tree species and tree condition. So you can kind of see in this map on the big one on the center, they've done species color coded and that's why all the trees look nice, but these are actually based on LIDAR and imagery. So they get the tree shape, the structure, the branching, you know, so they look like trees. And then on the right, separate rent, you know, visualization, they do a health assessment of each tree as well. So they say, is it, you know, green, yellow, or red? Is it health, fair to healthy? Is it stressed or is it super stressed? That we've been able to do for a long time with sort of NDVI analysis, you know, looking at the vegetation indices, we could get a sense of stress. But combining species and condition is sort of the holy grail of urban tree mapping. Um, because again, right now, most places send an arborist out on the ground with a clipboard and they look at the tree and they assess it and they make notes and then it ends up in a database. The city of Los Angeles, not my jurisdiction, but the city of Los Angeles has an estimated 10 million public trees. And a public tree is a tree along a street or in a park, not the trees in anyone's yard or on private properties, business parks, or things like that, just the public trees. The average cost to send a consultant out, an arborist, to assess a tree is between four and seven dollars. So you can hire, you know, Davy Tree or one of the, you know, one of those tree companies 
to come look at all your public trees and for somewhere in the $48 per tree range, they will go around, drive around and assess all your trees. So you can see where the math comes pretty quickly. You know, for the city of LA, 10 million trees, let's go with the four, you know, the $4, it's still, you know, $40 million to do a tree assessment. And how long is that gonna take you to do 10 million trees? It's gonna, you know, they, it took them over a decade to, to go from their last tree map to their next tree map. Because you just can't do 10 million trees in a week, right? No matter how many people you put on it, it's gonna take a long time. So perfect case for remote sensing, right? We can do this from aerial imagery, image classification, and we can do it more, you know, presumably more frequently. So we're working on a project now in LA County, uh, not very creatively called the Urban Tree Sensing Project, but hey, it's something. Um, and as I said, we know we're we're okay to a degree, even though it's slow and expensive, knowing our public trees, because we our public works folks get our street trees, our parks department gets our park trees as often as they can, given budgets and time. But what we don't know anything about is those private trees, trees is, you know, um, in people's yards, business parks, campuses of all sorts. And there's two reasons that might matter. And I, not going to surprise anybody, I don't think. Reason one, when we're talking about urban heat island effects, which is a big deal with climate change and all the other concerns we have, and you know, air quality runoff, all these other things that trees provide service, you know, environmental you know, benefits uh, from, it's not enough to just look at your public trees because you can't assess the impacts of the urban heat island or stormwater runoff or air quality if you only look at that small fraction of the tree canopy that's public, you know, the tree in your yard actually matters too. We want you to have trees in your yard. They, they contribute benefits. And we don't have necessarily the time, the money, or maybe even the, the access to go in your yard and look at all your trees anyway, if we were going to do that on the ground. It's just not feasible. So how do we do that? Well, aerial imagery will work. I can see the tree in your backyard from above in my Lariat imagery. I don't need to. I don't need to ask permission to go in your yard. I'm not violating any privacy laws. Actually, um, that's already gone through the Supreme Court. It's totally legal for me to look at the trees in your yard from the air. So let's do it. That's the idea. Uh, we can more frequently not just get our public trees, but maybe our private trees. Um, we can we can get better information that feeds these things. The other place isn't just the, the heat island and the, and the environmental stuff there. It's also insects or disease issues. So there's a boring beetle, um, the shot hole oak borer that's infiltrated Southern California and is killing off large swaths of trees up in the national forests, but also down in the foothills and other areas. Dead trees are a problem. Any idea why? Fire is the big one, right? I mean, yes, we lose the shade, we lose the cooling, we lose all those environmental effects, but now we have dead, dead trees are fuel for fires. Now we're gonna get bigger fires and then we get mudslides and you know, it's just a cascade of bad stuff. So the problem with these insect infestations, the shat hole borers or otherwise, is if you don't find the dead tree when it's the one tree that's been infested and then the the insect lays its eggs and then millions of new insects come out next spring and spread out and kill hundreds of trees nearby. We often don't know there's an infestation until you know dozens of acres or hundreds of acres of dead trees pop up. 
maybe because they're out of sight up in the national forest and you just don't even see it because no one's hiking through there. Or maybe because it's just, you know, down in that valley, a little bit out of sight from, you know, your neighborhood. But either way, if we don't know it because it's not a public tree that we're watching, um, that's a huge risk. So we want to know where we have dead and dying trees because of fire risk and all the other stuff too. Uh, so there's lots of, of obvious reasons. So this project, what we're doing is basically we said, well, we've got Lariat data. We fly it every, you know, minimally every three years in the older times, but now every year. Um, we also have LIDAR data that gives us structure and, and height and other, other characteristics of trees. And there's some other data that's coming soon to a satellite near you. Right now, it's uh, only in airplanes. The Everest system that JPL likes to fly around LA County is a test sensor, but that's going to go into space and hopefully in a few more years. They're on the verge of launching a hyperspectral sensor into orbit. So this project is sort of working on the assumption that if we can develop a workflow where we use Lariat data, LIDAR data, and hyperspectral data that's really useful for getting health and condition of trees and species of trees, we can get the holy grail tree map. And if we get that workflow based on the airborne version of, that, of Everest, when that's spaceborne and it comes over every week, we can update our maps through the season instead of only once a year or once every few years. That's really cool. Um, and we solve all these other just practical issues of getting people, you know, information they need. Um, so our goals in this project are, you know, again, we want to get species, we want to get canopy metrics, dense, you know, crown size, fuel loads, all that sort of stuff, health. Uh, and we wanted to build this whole project out around data that's either free or already available, i.e. the Lariat data that we fly. And then we're gonna build this all out on open source tools so we can share it with the world when we're done. So you know, Orange County might want it too, and I live in Orange County, so I want them to want it. Um, you know, Ventura County might want it, go down the list. Um, lots of, of people need this sort of stuff. Um, so I'm not gonna to get too into the weeds because this is a work in progress. And honestly, I need my PhD student to explain it because I can't do it. I have a PhD student at UCLA who's doing the heavy lifting of all the coding on this algorithm and it's working quite well. Um, but we've got the LiDAR data, as I said, on the, you know, roughly every 10 year cycle with the new ones coming, he's using the, the old one. We've got the ortho photos from uh, Lariac. We have some old tree canopy mapping data from Lariac that we can use to sort of help train the models. And then we've got this JPL sensor. So you guys probably aren't gonna to get to use hyperspectral data in class anywhere. Maybe some of our guests work with hyperspectral. I know the folks over at the Aerospace Corporation have some really cool hyperspectral sensors because I've gone and talked to them about them, uh, but they didn't wanna fly for us. Who's listening? Uh, so as I said, this is, um, this sensor is currently being flown by JPL regularly over LA County just for their own tests, but they've been doing it for a long time. So we've got a history of data. It's 224 bands. So, you know, your four band sensor or your even 10 band sensor that you guys get to fly on the drones, this is way, way more narrow band detailed information than any sensor you're, you're familiar with. It is coarse pixels, 20 meter pixels, because there's not enough energy in a narrow band, enough photons bouncing off the surface to do, you know, 10 centimeter pixels. You won't get enough energy. 
So they're bigger pixels, but by using big pixels from Avris and small pixels, 10 centimeter pixels from Lariac, we can do image fusion and sort of get the spatial out of Lariac, the spectral out of Avris and, and get the best of them. And image fusion is kind of a technique of merging different image types to get to that detail and then throwing the LiDAR uh, to get the structure data. So this is sort of the, the data sets we'll work with. Um, this is a very simplified version of the workflow, um, just to give you a sense of how we're, we're tackling it. So we take our imagery, um, you know, from these different things at the upper left there, um, and do some, you know, some merges or fusions between those, um, and some subsetting based on land cover, so we can mask out water and, you know, other, you know, buildings and other things that are clearly not trees. No sense wasting energy classifying pixels we know are not trees. So masking is a great way to do that. Um, and then they do some, you know, we do some transforms on that um, fused data set to pull out the, the key information that we're after. Um, and this is just using some convolution neural network methods. Um, you can read about it in the literature, some segmentation methods to basically pull out crowns, do the, the assessment of the spectral bands of the structure to get us to tree species, tree condition, tree size, tree structure. Um, so it's kind of a, a, you know, conceptually it's an easy process, computationally it's pretty heavy, uh, but we're doing this in three different parts of the county right now, down near uh, the coastal zone, in the beach area, in the foothill zone, and then somewhere in sort of a, a moderately urbanized zone to sort of get a sense. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers John's getting right now, but he's been hitting 80 to 90% accuracy on his initial tests, which is as good as most traditional world sensing methods would get. So if we can hit something at that level or better of accuracy and run that countywide with these methods, we'll have the best tree map of any county in the world, probably, um, hopefully in the next year or two. Um, he's got to finish publishing all his papers and all that stuff, but stay tuned. So that's sort of exciting stuff. Um, and this, I would say, just to step back from the details, is an example, much like the one I did on homelessness with the court last year, where we as government want to partner with academia, with private and public agencies of various sorts who have data sets like Betzel did for the fire mapping, or JPL does for the hyperspectral, or you know, whoever. Um, you know, building these sort of researching partnerships to, allows us to push the envelope of what we can do in local government. Most local governments would never go here either because they don't have the resources or the expertise, but the partnerships let us build those opportunities. Um, and it, I, you know, honestly creates market opportunities for our partners in the private sector because they can show, hey, a big county like LA is finding use in our products and that, that helps them. It helps us because we answer a question we need and it helps the academic community because they get to do some, you know, participate and help push the research and the, and the development and kinds of approaches. So I think it's a win-win-win and, you know, anyone listening from private sector with cool data and systems, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, so I think just to sort of bring this home because we're getting to that point, um, I think, yeah, hopefully I've given you a few examples. I could go on all night, 
there's lots of opportunities for us to take these remotely sensed image data sets, these other geospatial data sets, merge them together and do analysis in various ways to take what are pretty pictures for remote sensing and create useful data for decision. And that's, you know, as I alluded to at the beginning, one of the things when I came to the county four and a half years ago that really frustrated me early on was they spent a lot of money on Lariac and they didn't derive a lot of product from it. It was essentially a pretty picture that people used as a base map in their GIS work. They did a couple of feature extractions like building footprints, but pulling out trees, pulling out impermeable surfaces, pulling out other, you know, pulling out encampments of, of populations that are in risk zones for fire or flood. Those are things that translate imagery and remote sensing into decision-making tools that we can really use. I think for all of you as students or practitioners, you know, that's where we want to go. Um, it's one thing to do all this fun geospatial remote sensing work because it's fun to play with. We do, you know, we, we write some cool code, we do some cool analysis, but it's when we can actually impact people on the ground that I think it, you know, really matters. It's actually why I left academia to go to government partly. <laughs> uh, um, the other thing, though, I think that's interesting here is COVID taught us a really interesting lesson about the power of geospatial and remote sensing just as a tool set for government, because we suddenly were forced to figure out how to do our jobs without being able to go on the field, how to leverage imagery and remote sense data along with our other geospatial data so we could do desktop assessments of properties or of, you know, dumping violations or of encroachments or of homeless encampments or whatever it is. Um, and I think what that's done is both raise the profile of the value of geospatial and actually, at least for LA County, I can say it's changed our workflows. We will not go back to doing some of these things in the field that we used to do in the field because we've shown the, uh, the departments that benefit from that, that they can get much more efficiency and effectiveness out of their expensive and you know specialized staff if they can do the same job you know at their desk and don't have to spend two hours in traffic getting to and from a site to do an inspection because we all know la traffic right if if i am a field worker who's going to go visit three gas pumps to make sure they give me a gallon or three gas stations that probably all multiple pumps to make sure they give me a gallon of gas or i'm going to go visit you know a street full of trees to assess their condition and their, you know, and, and you do a street tree map. Um, I'm going to spend half my day in traffic and half my day doing real work. And by using remote sensing tools at my desk, I can get a full day of work doing assessments and not sit any time in traffic, which is you know, more productivity, less carbon emissions, less risk of an accident driving around, less frustration. And our taxpayers are happier because they're getting actual stuff for their money, right? So I think it's a win-win, and I think we're going to keep seeing more of that. And as I said, there's lots more we can do. I think, you know, where we are going to go, some of the projects we're continuing to look at and starting to work towards at the county, certainly lots more applications of change detection. It's obvious for things like buildings or tree condition, but, you know, looking at other kinds of change detection at the level of, like, cracks in the streets or you know, missing street signs or smaller features that, you know, that we might not have thought about using remote sensing for in the past. The image quality, the image types, the 
the platforms we collect data from, airborne drones at the site level or roof, uh, you know, rooftop on a car, they all give us more possibilities to do this kind of assessment, some change detection analysis we couldn't do maybe you know, 10 years ago or later, even five years ago. Um, we're also looking at a lot more either real-time or near real-time analytics. So, you know, can we shorten the time from collection to decision, you know, by capturing data close to the time and place the event or the need demands it and put that through a, an analytical pipeline that lets us make a decision in a timely manner. And we've done that with post-fire inspections, not having sent people on the ground. We can get your house assessed, your property assessed, and you know, get your permits going without leaving the office. Um, in fact, we can probably be more proactive and just say, hey, we looked at it and we know you need to do a cleanup and, a, and you need a permit because your house got burned down. Why do we have to wait for you to call us? We know you own that property. We know your address. We know your property was damaged because we looked at the imagery. We should be able to fire that off to you automatically. You shouldn't have to tell us your house burned down. So those kinds of things, getting more real time and emergency response and other contexts would be useful. And I think, you know, the other exciting thing is getting more into the predictive modeling. Instead of waiting for something to happen, can we do change analysis and analytics on whatever it is to say, hey, it looks like this thing is starting to go bad. Let's fix it before it breaks. You now, whether that's the road needs to be resealed or repaved, or whether that's this tree is starting to look stressed, we need to go make sure there's not an infestation um, that needs to be treated before it spreads. Um, the more we can get the data quicker and into predictive models, the more we can get ahead of these problems before the problems. So lots of stuff coming. Uh, the hurricane there because that's predictive modeling. How do they know where the hurricane's gonna go? They've been showing us for a week. Look out, Tampa. You know what? Tampa didn't get hit, but you know, the model is a little off. I think the hurricane model is better. Um, I have to ask them, did anyone see if you were watching the news later this afternoon? Tampa Bay, because of the wind, the water is gone. It blew it all out of the bay. It's just mud. And the wind is so strong. No one put that in the predictive model. They were saying it's going to flood. It's the opposite. They don't have any water. The bay is literally empty. And they said it probably won't fill up again until tomorrow, until the wind dies down, because the water, the wind's just pushing the water out. You can't get it. It's crazy. Like, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, okay. This is for the students. I had to put an album cover because I always do. I didn't put it on every slide. Um, but I think, you know, again, the technology is really cool. It's why we're all in it. It's why we work in imagery and mapping and, you know, and feature, you know, the, the analytics to do the machine learning and extraction, all that. But again, at the end of the day, it's about making the job more effective you know, for us. So and moving to the desktop, moving to the analytics and data-driven decisions. So we're not guessing, we actually know something um, and, and really turn this stuff around quickly. So I already sort of said this again. So that, um, a couple of parting things just for everyone, especially those who maybe aren't familiar with our data resources. We do have a lot of data that's public facing in LA County as most government agencies do. Um, so we have, Two ways to our data, data.lacounty.gov or gis.lacounty.gov. Um, as of last, oh, it's actually on the screen. There are 569 data sets through our open data portal. 499 of those are geospatial data sets, you know, map data that you can link to. 
So if you want to do any kind of analysis related to maps in LA County, this is a publicly facing resource, not just to download data, but to hit rest endpoints, to hit services, so you don't have to pull data, you just connect to the live data in many cases. So there's a lot of good stuff for you know, anyone out there that's working with analysis in the county. Um, and I think that's the other piece I'd say is, you know, at the end of the day, data is data doesn't tell us anything until we convert it into something useful. Um, we've done a number of things as I alluded to through, uh, you know, through the talk, uh, worked on homelessness, worked on broadband, worked on you know, a whole bunch of dashboards and, and tools for COVID related stuff um, and the links are there. But again, I encourage anyone who's you know, students or professionals, if there's stuff you wanna do, um, you know, one of the great values of government data is it's available. You can leverage it and use it and build your own applications or your own analysis. So I'd love to see, you know, see you do that, whether it's with us or just because of us making it available. Um, I love to partner with folks uh, and push the envelope for everyone forward, but I know there's also times that your applications may not be what we need, but you can still do them. Um, they're useful for you. So I have to, of course, do this for our guests. Uh, as you know. Hey, and I have them physically. I think uh, no, I won't say any more about that. Other than they exist, they're available on fine booksellers everywhere. Um, and with that, I will stop. I think I'm sort of right about where I'm supposed to be. And if there's any questions, I'm happy to take them. Hello everyone, this is really exciting. I, I think you probably didn't realize actually uh, Dr. Stamberg was doing here is actually the beginning and there's a core or many things to come. For example, you're doing the street thing. Of course, Google is doing also similar things like uh, smart cars, you know, the, the IOT, and uh, it's kind of smart city type of thing. You know, I have a, well, people, folks online, if you have any questions, please click raise hand, then we'll uh, give you the mic access. So. Uh, but I have a what well, there's a QA. Uh, wait, wait a second, <laughs> just I can do it here. Technology is awesome. Yeah, it is, it is amazing. Uh, for me, let me see. Uh, Pratik, uh, you can go ahead, speak up. Go ahead, Pratik. Hello, um, good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks for the invitation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I had a question. So, is there any public-private partnerships and projects that are being offered by the county, which would also be some publications? Yeah. So, as I said, you know, where it's you know where there's overlapping interests and opportunity. Um, yeah, we love to do, you know, pilot studies or research studies, uh, like some of those I told you about here, um, where maybe we're using data sets or example, you know, or tools, algorithms, things like that, in collaboration with a private industry uh, or academia to do, you know, do those projects. And yeah, we do 
you know, where, where there is something interesting and appropriate, we love to publish too, sure. Um, so like that work we're doing with the UCLA on the tree mapping, that's already generating some publications and you know, conference presentations and things like that. So, you know, I think it's my history as an academic makes me, you know, maybe more inclined to want to publish and do research than your average government employee. Um, but it's certainly something we, we like to do because we don't want to keep it a secret. We want to share. Great, thanks, Bartik. Uh, uh, folks online, have any questions, uh, please click raise hand. Um, well, folks here, you can also welcome raise your hand. Ask me something really hard. Yeah. Um, regarding the project that the last cohort did, uh, the analysis of the unhoused people, it was that closer to like a, a pilot project was testing out what the capabilities are, or is there a pathway to start setting that into like progress for LA County? So I would say it's more of a pilot at this point because it was a very targeted data set um, because we had to, what we were doing because of student safety and you know and just general privacy issues for the, the people that are in those images. Um, we only did it in a spot where we already had imagery and some field validation data from the county. Um, so we don't yet know how that would translate into different environments. I mean, it was a pretty good environment in the sense that we had some encampments that were more exposed, some that were more occluded by the tree canopy, and we had a whole variety of different sort of structures. You know, you have the traditional tents um, in multiple colors, and then you have the more created structures, you know, or found, you know, materials and tarps and, you know, whatever, um, which tend to be, again, in different colors as well. Um, that, that team actually ran into some problems with particular colors of material not popping out as well. Um, they got most of it, but, um, and then there are some issues about the occlusion by canopy that, you know, the blob detector only can go so far and say it's big enough to be a tent. Because uh, if you make it too small, it might look like a tent, but it's actually just some trash or something that's not really big enough. So there's some additional work that I think we need to do there to really hone that algorithm down a little bit more to, to be reliable. Uh, the other thing I'd like to see us do if we do follow up work on that is, and again, we need field data from the homeless initiative or LASA, um, would be to actually get a sense of, is there a relationship, the statistical relationship between the size of the structure and the number of occupants? Because it's not always one structure, one individual. It might be one structure, multiple individuals or a whole family. So, you know, if we can sort of get that next level of reliable identify of the structures plus an estimate that's reasonable of the estimated number of people, then I think we can actually do far better than the traditional homeless counts that are done now. Uh, because again, they don't go look in a tent, see how many people are there. They just say, yep, there's a tent there. Or yes, I see somebody sleeping on the street there. Um, if they can see the individual, they can count them. Otherwise, you know, they're just guessing too. So, you know, nothing will be perfect. But I think my mantra on these kinds of analyses is at least they're repeatable. So if we have an algorithm we know does the same thing every time, even if it's wrong, it's wrong in an understandable way. And then we can improve it. Versus if I have every one of you go out with a clipboard and start counting, 
you're all going to do your own version of that count, and I don't have a way to you know easily normalize those numbers because somebody may be very careful and somebody else may be a bit sloppy in how they do that. So you know that's where the machine learning and the AI is really valuable because over time we can improve it because we have understandable errors instead of random, you know, totally random. Everybody does their own thing. So maybe we'll follow up on that project. I, I don't know. Since you mentioned the machine learning, yeah, is that you do it in house? You develop or you purchase the packages? Um, so that's an interesting question. Uh, the simple answer is, for the most part, we do not do this in house. So we either partner with, as in the tree study, the, a university. So we're doing that with UCLA, and you know, faculty and a doctoral student at UCLA are working on that project. In some cases, we purchase commercial solutions out of the box from vendors. Um, the interesting thing there, and I'm not gonna name anybody because I don't wanna accuse anybody of not doing great work. Um, we've had mixed results on the commercial products and how good they are, how, how, how good the results we get out of them are. So there's lots of vendors selling lots of machine learning algorithms that are, you know, hey, buy our tool set and we can tell you where all the trees are. We can tell you where all the impermeable surface are. The academic side of me, I don't like black boxes. I wanna know what's in that black box, how your algorithm's working and can we validate it you know, and can, you know, as a peer reviewed, all that stuff. So the problem with those commercial things to a degree is, yeah, I can buy three different algorithms that claim to do the same thing and I get three different answers. So which vendor do I go with? You know, that's a hard one. And when you're writing a, a call for proposals, you know, I can say, I want somebody to give me a certain level of accuracy. Um, that's the best I can do, but I don't know where the error is. Is it on species? Is it on health? Is it on certain species versus another of the big trees? You know. So the way we try to do some of those is to do proof of concept works in partnership with the vendors before we do any contracts for big projects to sort of find out, you know, together, can we optimize the algorithm? Can we optimize the workflow and make that better? And then, you know, if we can, you know, as I said earlier, I think that helps us to get a better product. It helps the vendors to be able to say, hey, we did it for LA County, the biggest county in the country. So you should trust us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, it's not that I'm trying to give people marketing material, but indirectly, you know, I think Lariac is a perfect example as a program. LA County was the first county in the country to do a large regional imaging consortium. A lot of the tools that are in that product I showed on the screen, the measurements and analysis of the imagery that the vendor created were created in partnership with the county because we demanded them. And then they now sell those to all their other customers, of course. So I think in that sense, we can push the envelope and help vendors to see what's beneficial to us as a customer, and then they can develop, help you know, co-develop them and then go off and use them elsewhere. And this is so exciting because Edible has a uh, it can say project for those of us seeing we are working with, for example, uh, next week we have the space architecture event, but those people are actually doing construction, but also this thing also related to the future city kind of things. Mm -hmm. And this data collected or technology uh, developed. Uh, in the future, we have, you know, smart cars or flying cars. You all need all this kind of same data uh, yeah. available. 
to make it work. But when you mentioned this, uh, a couple of things come up was, first thing you mentioned uh, academia. Actually, you can think about publishing a data for journal. Sure. That, that will be very, this is new field. The second question is, you, you mentioned uh, LA County is the largest. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's what you ever is the leading in the nation for the city. We try. <laughs> but is there any other cities doing similar things? Do you mention New York? Yeah, I mean, in all these different realms, there's uh, you know colleagues or counterparts of mine around the country that do this. And that's one of the things that, you know, you mentioned networking and a professional association. Yeah. You know, through the professional networks I have, I, you know, I know the people that, you know, that run these programs in Chicago, New York, oh, you know, wherever. See. So we regularly are talking to each other and saying, oh, well, hey, have you guys done, you know, this kind of a project? What tools and imagery and, you know, resources did you bring to bear? So we do try to, to you know, through both professional associations or just our professional networks, try to talk. And in fact, my counterpart in, in Cook County, Chicago, which is the second largest county in the country. Um, they're about 3 million, we're about 10 million. So you can see the difference in one to two. He just started over the last couple of months and we've had two meetings now, a bi-monthly meeting of the 20 largest county GIOs in the country. So we get together now every other month and have a discussion around how what we're doing with geospatial, how we're applying it, how we're running our programs, because we can all learn from each other and share those things. And I can, you know, I'd add on to that too. Um, like I'm going to a conference, my students know this next week, um, up in, you know, which is the big national GIS conference. We're doing a presentation on the CAMS addressing system, not explicitly, but on addressing and, you know, sort of enterprise level um, data systems in that realm in conjunction with a counterpart from Georgia and a counterpart from one of the commercial firms that they work with. So we'll put together these collaborative projects and presentations or you know, things like that as well. Yeah, this is coming, you mentioned enterprise. Actually, this is very interesting from two perspectives. Mission consortium. Um, so if people want to join your consortium, how, how would they do? They have to apply through you or? Yeah, so the Lariat Consortium, I, and I'll just say up front, it is traditionally a government and academic oh. consortium. And there have been discussions at various times about how or if we can include private organizations oh. in that. At this point, there are none. I don't think that means there can't be. So, you know, I think. I would love to talk to folks who are interested in that. Actually, that's the next question. Actually, <laughs> actually, I'm going to ask you because time is limited. Uh, yeah. uh, how would you, can I say, how would you like AI or the local industry, aerospace industry, uh, aerospace industry, how would you be looking into uh, what they can offer for you or what you're looking to, for example, we can try to make a connection. So what kind of, uh, that you're looking like, uh, uh, or and are you currently working with Boeing or some companies? So how are you working yeah. to that we can assist? So I think a couple of things. One, I'm going to turn to this room and say, as you did at the beginning, I think one of the things is opportunities that you mentioned light up. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, but I think for the students, I think it's that they understand and see there are organizations that use and work around these geospatial 
collection and analysis and so on. I, you know, the aerospace industry is probably doing more of the use of geospatial for things like navigation or how they or building systems that collect the data, right? So I think you know those opportunities aren't necessarily always the first things that students in these kinds of programs know about or think about. So I'm happy we're able to do that. Um, as far as potential partnerships, you know, I haven't worked a lot with the aerospace industry directly, except where they're in the Im the imagery collection. Right. The JPLs, the Vexels, the EcoViews. So those are the firms that do the, they, they just take out of the box, you know, airplanes and fly systems. They engineer the systems, but the world sensing systems. Um, I met with folks at aerospace a few times and, you know, and, and we've talked about potential research projects. That was right before COVID, so that all kind of died with COVID. I'd love to re-engage with, you know, the people who are looking for ways to use sensors to collect you know, data. You know, I know some of these sensor systems that we were talking about that are being developed in the private sector, um, you know, they can detect certain chemical signatures, they can detect certain materials, you know, they're getting into more tuned remote sensing systems. You know, again, when I think about enforcement as a government agency, I want to know if there's a chemical spill in the back of some, you know, industrial facility. Wouldn't it be great if we could, you know, fly over, you know, we saw that with that, uh, those gas leaks up in, I forget, uh, up in Northern County, you know, a few years ago, or methane or whatever was coming out of the wells. You know, if you can sense that's those kinds of things uh, with systems that are either regularly flown airborne or orbital, you know, because I think the big struggle we have as government is something like Lariat, we plan those flights, they happen on a cycle, and we only get what happened on the day of the flight. It's these unexpected things, like an emergency or or a chemical spill or a, you know whatever it might be, you know how or, or the insect infestations. If I have an orbital system or even an airborne system that's you know maybe more regularly flown, um, and we've talked to companies that fly blimps or things that could be up in the air for you know days at a time instead of just you know an hour. Um, those are the kinds of systems that are sort of you know monitoring systems that will be really valuable in government, not just for us, but I think most government agencies. And a lot of that is the stuff that are in the three-letter agencies that we can't talk to, you know, the, the secret stuff. Yeah. You know, they're using that stuff in the in the CIA and yeah. the, you know, the geospatial intelligence agencies, things like that. But, you know, 50 years ago, infrared imagery was a, a classified technology, you know, until it became publicly available and now we use it for vegetation analysis and you know we can look at irrigation and water use and all these other things. I'd like to see as those things are trickling into the public domain and non-classified, how can we start to leverage those things to do a more effective governance? Yeah, I think for example the change webs based test they use the near IR. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of technology being used, developed as a could be transmitted. Of course that you know, a lot of technology you are using potentially, I think, uh, military to use it like in Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, similar. <laughs> so this is kind of, um, but as we, you, you mentioned about the firefighting and all those things. Do you have your own fleet uh, to operate for those things? Well, so for fire, there are some sensors that we have within the, the county fire okay. or shared between Orange County and LA County. They have some airborne systems that they fly real-time imagery on fires and they transmit that data real-time back to the ground 
the station so they can see the fire perimeters. So some of those things are happening. I think, you know, again, you know, making those workflows and those acquisitions easier, and maybe also, you know, as we miniaturize, putting more of those things onto small drones, you know, because a lot of these things we, we don't necessarily want to put aircraft up. You know, aircraft are expensive. You need a pilot, you need fuel, you need, you know, big expensive equipment. If I could put the same sensor on a thousand dollar or ten thousand dollar exactly. drone instead yeah. of a quarter million or million dollar aircraft, that's a huge win. Yes. Especially when we're talking about site level inspections or you know mapping the fire front or a mudslide or something like that. So, so how do you, you mentioned, for example, for satellite space when you kind of work with JPL. Uh, how do you think about, for example, uh, I know, but this is probably this is not top secret stuff that they talk about. <laughs> North Star Grumman, for example, a few years ago they worked on using military drone, but they make it more uh, civilian. Right. And they study the polar bear. And uh, they also we have we have like uh, uh, talks, AW talks by uh, you know uh, people from Air Force or NASA. They they use the same military drone. They right. Make it NASA. Right. Uh, uh, the Predator or some type. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so maybe there's a possibility you can just like the the model you work with JPL. Maybe you can work with them. They operate their advanced. Uh, but that's that's bigger one. Yeah, the bigger drones. For example, we we have a, a speaker that uh, he was uh, used to work with NASA and uh, used uh, uh, as I said converted military drones for NASA's research and they studied the wildfire and they even how to put down the fire those things. Uh, so maybe there is a way maybe you can work with NASA or something. Yeah. No, I think those are all you know good possibilities. You know, and again, I think. You know, the, the tricky thing in government, and it's not unique to us, and you know, any of you working government knows, is we're not always viewed as the most innovative and we don't move very fast. You know, it takes us a long time to engage in a procurement to even buy something in the first place. So that's where doing these sorts of research projects, you know, proof of concept, you know, with universities and yeah. partners um, through other, other avenues. Because if we can show something works, if we can demonstrate something works, then it's easier to do the procurement to take a research project and make it into a programmatic workflow. Now, and the thing is, and nobody's comfortable saying, oh, let's go out and spend a bunch of money on something we don't know is going to work. Because government's very cautious by nature because we don't want to waste taxpayer dollars. Um, you know, somebody's going to say, what? Why'd you go spend all this money on this experiment when we've got this, these potholes that aren't being filled? So we have to, you know, so where we can leverage those partnerships to demonstrate, you know, the value or the opportunity first, and it makes it a lot easier for us then to turn around and programmatically procure those services later. And that's how Larry Act and other things start. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, this very, uh, very good example, Larry, very good example. And uh, the thing is, you know, um, you know, uh, we also post a video online and we also put out newsletters of all our folks. Uh, they can join us, so they will be able to see and uh, we would we'll, we'll love to uh, build a connection. Uh, with more people. A any more questions here? I have tons, but I don't know how to keep asking. Uh, any any questions? One thing is you mentioned that some of the data, they are open access, number, but but how, how do you prevent that guys? You know, uh the classic question yeah so i'm gonna tell a short story and then we're getting close to the end of time uh, you know 
for a long time, the idea of open data you know, was kind of taboo. I mean, if you go back to the 80s or you know, earlier, I mean, certain data was always open, but especially after 9-11, there's a real shutdown on sharing data. You know, government agents would be like, we can't share our water system network data on an open data site because a terrorist might poison the water system. Or, you know, we can't post where our power plants are because they might blow up our power grid. Um, now, if I want to be really simplistic about it, I'd say if some bad actor really wants to take down our power grid, they don't need to download data from my website at the county to figure out where our power stations are. They can look at, you know, they can get in their car, follow the, the power guy's truck driving around, and eventually they're going to see, oh, there's the, the power station. You know, it's not hard. You know, somebody, if they want to find where City Hall is, they don't need to get a map from our website. They can just, you know, they can, you know, they can drive downtown and find City Hall. So, you know, on one level, it's just, I think that was a, an excuse, for lack of a better term, for people not wanting to share data. And the real reason, and I, you know, I, been around this long enough to, to see the change. Historically, people didn't want to share data because their data wasn't very good. It was, it was messy. It wasn't developed with the idea of sharing. So a lot of the codes or the, the details, they're like, well, I know in my head what this is and it works for me in my office for my analysis. You know, I run the, the water department at my city and I'm good. But as soon as somebody outside comes and asks for it, it's like, well, wait, if I give it to you, you're going to ask me 100 questions about what the codes mean and why this error is here and how this works. And I don't have time for that. So I'd rather say I can't share the data because the terrorists might use it to avoid the whole problem. But open data laws started coming into, into the norm in the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, depending where you are, where the idea of sharing data has become more normalized and more common, we still face some people who don't want to share data. And I still believe, I mean, my wife, who's a, uh, a social scientist, has a great saying, asking somebody to show you their data is like asking them to show you their underwear. Because <laughs> they don't want to expose all the, 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 the hidden secrets. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it, it's embarrassing if your data is not very good. You know, maybe you can do what you need, but as soon as somebody else has to figure it out, it's like, oh, now I got to. No, not you know, I look back or I think I'm going to look back. And the other thing people often were worried about is what well, took me five years to build that data set up and we spent all this time and effort. Why should I give it to you for free? You know, and my answer to that one's very simple. It's public money, government agency, taxpayers pay for it. So it's your data. Of course we should share. If our data isn't clean and understandable and the metadata is not good, we should fix it. So I'm always on, and I've pushed this idea since I've come to the county, our default assumption should be all data is open unless there's a reason it can't be. If there's a confidentiality issue, you know, HIPAA data, medical data, privacy, you know, issues like that. But unless there's a really good reason not to make data public, it should be public. That's my perspective. And we've tried to make more and more of our data public, but, you know, along that. You, you mentioned about the tree, you know, in your house, it's no privacy yeah. issue. That's very good. I, because the reason I asked because many years ago, I had a friend that he realized that his house was imaged by Google. Yeah. So he somehow was able to reach to Google and tell them to remove this uh, skin you know, of this uh, house. So he, he showed me that uh, Google he did, took, took it out. 
Yeah. So if you go to the Google Maps, it's the, the it's, it's the connection that's like that. Interesting. Yeah, but but anyway, that that <laughs> that's kind of funny. Um, the, the, the imaging is everything. I think two days ago we saw the dart. Yeah. Uh, NASA dart hit the asteroid, and then you see you can see how the hitting that shows everything. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited. So this is one thing. If you show the uh, street view, uh, you see there are so many maps. You know, 3D maps, um, Android or Apple phones, iOS phones, and uh, um, so. But how do you differentiate? I, I guess what you're saying is that you're kind of study uh, certain kind of things. So, for example, in the future, if there is like a smart cars, smart cities, would those data come from companies like Google or actually come from cities? It'll be a mix. So that CAMS data I alluded to at the beginning with okay. the addresses and that also includes street center lines. The LIDAR is very important. You know, yeah. keep the cars and oh, yeah. distant to the building. Right. So having that kind of data set, a lot of that comes from government agencies. Um, and I think, again, it's because the companies don't want the liability, right? Yeah. If, my, if my self-driving car crashes because exactly. yeah. my data set privately acquired wasn't good, um, now my company's liable. If I took the official data from the county, well, now maybe the county is liable. So you can, yeah, I don't want the liability either, but you know, that's a way, I think it's a way to protect in some sense. But more importantly, it's the idea that the county's data in this case of, you know, addresses and streets is the official data. Legally, it, it already is. We are responsible to assign addresses. So if you're a self-driving car has to know how to get to 123 Main Street, we better know where 123 is and what the roads are to get there. And if something changes, you know, we're the, we're the entity responsible to know it changed and communicate that change. So, um, and those things, as I said, they roll up to, you know, from counties to states to federal, you know, for a whole bunch of different kinds of data. So it's, you know, in, in this country, it is the role of government to be the source of certain kinds of information uh, that's trusted. So, you know, something like that. Sure, that is definitely going to feed the self-driving cars and, you know, a lot of the other things. Yeah, you mentioned that it's like a, a, a scanning, you know, a detection, acquisition of image. Um, because that's actually, how often do you update those, those data? So the aerial imagery, we do satellite. No, we take the right. Well, yeah, satellites we don't control, right? Those are public satellites or private satellites, like Maxar. Things. We we haven't done a lot with satellite data. We're starting to look at that as a possibility for frequent. Most of ours is airborne from aircraft, um, so we we schedule those at most twice a year. Um, more often, once a year. We're sort of playing with that. Um, in our next Lariac cycle, I don't know what we're going to land on. I think it, I, I'm pushing for twice a year uh, to continue. So we get sort of a, a spring and summer or you know, winter, summer, sort of early in the year and late summer. Some of our uh, uh, students or professors, they have the student cube set. So maybe kind of collaboration that could set up some kind of project. Yeah. And we also do some kind of demo. You know, we, we are working with uh, some company and we're trying to do the drone demo. Uh, we can kind of put up some kind of project, small project, you know, as as you said, show showcase of your uh, software or database uh, using that, that could be a good project for education yeah. type of things. Well, we're probably getting a point we should wrap yeah. up. <laughs> I'm sorry, because it's no. so exciting. I'll hang out. <laughs> I don't I don't 
some people have drives ahead of them. So okay, all right. So let's uh, uh, thank uh, Dr. Stanford. Is a uh, appreciate appreciation certificate. Oh, presenting you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. For so I, I can hang out and talk for a few minutes if you guys want to throw. That's fine. Remember, next week, Monday, with Dr. Wexler, uh, instead of Wednesday. And I will be back on Wednesday. Dr. Wexler is following me. It's all on your syllabus. As everything 